Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. I'm back with another rap. I never need jerk. Yo, I never rest when I rap and jest and I make a song. We've got a guest from out west named Caitlin Long. But before we start this, we'll talk markets. Bimnet, my dog, he'll take the fog out and parse it. The corn might be down, but I don't clown with my cash because I'll be stacking stats till my body turns to ash. But before we begin, please refer to the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information shared during this podcast represents an offer or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of Firmwide Research at Galaxy Digital. We have an awesome show today. As I said, we have Caitlin Long, the founder and CEO of Custodia Bank, a Wyoming special purpose depository institution, on the show to talk about FTX's collapse, uh, banking and property rights as it relates to digital assets, crypto contagion, and much more. A wide-ranging conversation with Caitlin you do not want to miss. We also have Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading, as always, to talk about markets and what he sees out there. And my friend Christine Kim and I uh, will talk about crypto news, um, some interesting stuff happening in the Ethereum ecosystem, um, a, an interesting lawsuit filed by an investment firm against Grayscale, the issuer of GBTC, and much more. Um, I've already read the disclaimer, so I think we're ready to get right into it. Let's do this. Welcome, Bibnet Abibi, my friend uh, from Galaxy Digital Trading. Uh, great to have you here, as always. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, I, I, you know, has there been anything big happening in markets? I saw some sell-off in the equity markets a little bit. It's been a little rough, but not, you know, compared to some of the other weeks that we've covered over this mm -hmm. you know, on this show, uh, didn't hasn't seemed too notable. Um, maybe I'm wrong. What are you saying? Yeah, you know, the equity move has been sort of reasonable and it's not like a, a huge sell-off like like you've had in you know certain periods of this year but you've had some pretty remarkable moves in, in other markets um, starting with um, energy right you, you know crude's gone from like $82 a barrel to, to 72 bucks this week wow. alone um, you've had Treasury yields you know fluctuate a lot but but today they're taking out a pretty huge um, support level um, at 350 in yield and you're trading around 344 right now um but that was you know versus a high of of 420 and in, right. in 10s like you know i want to say about two months ago um so what you've had over the past you know 10 weeks to, to two months is a pretty huge rally in in duration and in, in fixed income uh, pretty reasonable sell-off in, in commodity markets like 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 energy uh mm -hmm. oil um and so you know what that broadly represents is an unwind of of the inflation trade um, and so, you know, the question is, can it continue? And that's really a function of, of sort of Fed policy and, and where the data comes in. So the biggest thing, you know, week over week that, that we've had in terms of, you know, data developments was, was yep. non-farm payrolls that came in really strong. Um, and also, you know, average hourly earnings that, that are fairly robust. Um, those data points basically told you the labor market's in incredibly tight and that, you know, the it's likely going to push the Fed to, to keeping rates higher for longer. Not necessarily um, that the, the Fed would, would take it much higher than, than where terminal rates are, are priced now. Um, so right now, um, the market's trying to, to balance um, growth and, and economic conditions, which they expect to slow down as a function of, of tight financial conditions that the Fed has instilled, um, and 
the the, the st- still strong aspects of, of the U.S. economy. You know, in my head, as long as people are employed in the U.S. and there's a tight labor market and people are still getting wage increases. I mean, I just got a headline that uh, of an, a large energy company giving all of its employees nine percent raises. Wow. Um, and. And so, like, there's still huge price pressures and in, in, in wages and a really strong labor market, and home prices aren't moving that much. And so, I really do think that until you get the labor market to crack, um, you're not really going to get um, the inflation inflation headed in, in the direction you want or moving in the magnitude that you really need it to. Yeah. So you have like consumer spending won't really go down much if it won't. if everybody's making more money or just everyone has. I mean, you hate to say everyone it. has a job. Yeah, you don't want to see account. it, but you you know if you're if you're bringing in good income, you yep. know it's hard for you to push yourself to actually stop spending. You're going to spend materially less, right? Now, Absolutely. of course, if you have less money coming in the door, then you will spend less. Um, the other thing is, you know, the U.S. consumer uh, built a, a pretty healthy savings base during the, the pandemic. You right. know, all the COVID relief checks, you know, three checks, the the um, the, the PPP loans. Right. Um, basically, all, 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 you know, you and got inflation relief checks in California even. And, and, and it's particularly like from, from like March 2020 until the early fall, basically yeah. everything was closed. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. But, and then the other big part is, is, is everybody that was a homeowner got an opportunity to refinance it, you know, right around 3%. Yeah. Right? And so... And asset markets, you know, just have gone up, right? Like you're you're well above like pre-COVID levels and in, in most asset markets, excluding you know bonds and stuff. Yeah. And so um, people have money saved. Yeah. They they feel wealthy. They're still employed, and they've locked in thirty-year mortgages on yeah. low three handles. So it's a tough not to crack. How are you going to crack inflation? Right. You still have like you know nine plus million job openings. Right. And so that's the predicament the Fed is in. Uh, but they're also trying to balance things like financial conditions. Right. What happens to the world when U.S. if the U.S. took interest rates to six percent wrecking ball? Right. I mean, I mean, that's potentially right. One theory. Yeah. Right. Um, but it's also, you know, what, what we've seen historically is that moving too early can almost be as dangerous um, as as not. Uh, moving, you know, high enough, right? You know, during the, you know, prior to the Volcker era, they they had to go on two batches of of raising interest rates, and that's because they made the mistake that inflation wasn't, you know, persistent. And you know, one of the anecdotes that sticks out to me all year is that, you know, I talked to um, a trader that that's based in local markets. He's a Brazilian trader, and he's like, the big difference between you know you Americans and and you U- Europeans that that are looking at this market is you guys have never seen inflation for your whole life. Like you live in Brazil, <laughs> inflation has been a part of your life and entrenched um, the the entirety of of your career and existence. Right. And so what he's trying to what he was essentially getting to is that once inflation gets entrenched, it's really tough to get out of it. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the, the risk that, that that's on the forefront of the Fed's minds. But but at the same time, you know, like th- the real impact of like taking asset markets much lower or getting it's unemployed. It's also really bad. It's also really bad. So is this why the entrenching of inflation, the concept, and we've heard this too, I mean, from, mm-hmm. uh, from a lot of folks, is this why some people are saying 
either recommending that the Fed do change its target from, say, 2% to 5% or predicting that they'll have to? Is that the idea? One because, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, one, because it, it could be entrenched and thus they may never get back to two. So they let's be realistic. Um, or or separately, is but is the thing, it's almost like um, if you say it, like it, it might happen, right? Like it's like by saying that they should change to 5%, are they entrenching inflation? At 5%, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, I mean, so, if the Fed changed so, the target, they absolutely would entrench it. Yeah. At 5%. So one of the, the key things that we have to think about in all of this is uh, the central bank's credibility is, is perpetually on the line, but really more so than ever um, in the standpoint that they got the inflation stuff wrong. Had they been more aggressive with with tightening monetary policy sooner, right? We'd we'd have less of a, a battle right now. And basically, they forecast inflation as as being transitory and not structural. Um, and so they got it all wrong, and not just in you know in the U.S., but 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 everywhere. And so if they start to you know move the goalposts with respect to inflation, that's just another hit on their credibility. Right. So that's one concern that I think you know a lot of market participants are, are focused on. But I totally agree with you that a feasible sort of end solution for for the predicament that we're in is is just us accepting higher base levels uh, of inflation and you know the Fed might need to move its target from 2% to to 3%. But they don't want to do that until it's already entrenched there because then uh, because they'll guarantee it if they say it now. Say, yeah. So it's sort of like that that'll always come last But, but here's there. here's kind of the, the interesting point, you know, I actually haven't looked at break evens today, but right now the market is telling the Fed that if they pursue their policy of of 5% terminal rates that inflation, you know, over one year or two years is expected to get to around their two to three percent target, like mid twos or, yeah. or whatever. Um, and historic, I'm not th those inflation breakages aren't really great predictors of, <laughs> of, of inflation, so I wouldn't take them. Yeah. But right now, the signals that the Fed's getting from the market is: you pursue your policy, you get us to where you told us you'd get to, um, and you'll likely see inflation come down. And Right now, um, it, it kind of like it's being more and more supportive. Like basically, every, every day this week, you've had a different bank CEO tell you you're going into a recession. Mm -hmm. You know, over over the next you know six months to a year, the probabilities are are really high. So the market's already baking it in, mm -hmm. um, in a way. Uh, but but again, it just it, it it really like in my head, I just keep thinking about the fact that you you're, you're still uh, people are still paying three percent mortgages and there are nine million job openings. I know that the and stickiness, the, the, the stickiness, yeah, it's hard the, to, tough it's, not to it's, crack. It, when you don't have enough people working to begin with, like. Like okay, so what if if Twitter lays off seventy five percent of their, their work staff or there's you know, nine there's million other jobs they can get? Uh, absolutely, right? Yeah, I hear right. you. Like, does it matter? All um, right. La lastly, just on anything interesting on crypto, either in relation to macro we've been talking about or any anything else that you're following. I mean, it looks to me mostly Bitcoin and ETH have been trading in a flat range since last week when we talked. You know, in the high sixteens and the in the twelves, twelve hundreds for ETH. Um, any, anything out there that you're paying attention to? You know. Um, it's, crypto is really tough because it's, it's really about the unknowns right now. Um, the fallout from, from FTX, the fallout from Genesis and, and DCG, what, what's likely going to happen there. Um, so we think that there's there's still stuff that, that we don't know that's yet to come out that can be a potential catalyst for the market. Uh, but at this point, you know, where I think the why I think the market is, is sort of, you know, stagnating yeah. is because most of the forced buying um, and forced selling has gone through in the market. You yeah. know, you're a forced buyer if you had, you know, Delta you needed to replace on exchange. You're a forced seller because the vol went up and you're uncomfortable with the risk. That stuff has has basically already happened. So now you're left with, you know, long-term players in the space, 
um, and, a, and a handful of speculators, and they're really only going to move around their positions based on catalysts. Yeah. And so when you in, in the absence of any catalysts, you know, there's you're no new, you're just waiting. Yeah. Um, and so there, I think that's kind of, you know, why, you know, Bitcoin has stagnated around 17K and, you know, ETH's been 12 and 1300. It's like which way Western Which way? There's, no, say, there's, yeah. no, there's no near term catalyst. And so. Well, and there's some that we, to your point, there's some unknowns, but there's also ones that are known unknowns. For example, more information about the FTX creditors mm-hmm. or, you know, what happens with Genesis or, or yeah. any of the other bankruptcies or. And so, yeah, no. you're right. It's sort of pinning us. But 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 again, like uh, like it's really tough for me to think about crypto and just focus on the liquid side of things. There are so many interesting things going on um, outside of, of the liquid, um, you mm-hmm. know, market in terms of, you know, all of these bankruptcy assets that you could potentially own businesses that are for sale. You know, additional equity offerings, yeah, exactly. basis trades in, in markets, grayscale CME futures and stuff. So there's a huge opportunity set in crypto right now. Um, and, you know, for those that are looking to d- deploy capital, you know, there's lots of creative ways. And you're saying to, particularly outside of spot. Outside of spot. Yeah. Interesting. Right? Um, and, you know, like at the end of the day, a, a company that can generate you, you know, 15 percent on, on capital is a 15% return on capital. It doesn't matter if, you know, you're slinging soybeans or, or you know, you're you're making machines. It's 15% return on capital. Right. Right? And so I think there's a lot of people that are looking at the crypto space from, from that standpoint right now, yeah. which is very different than, you know, say a year ago where it's just like, oh, my God, here's the a shit coin so that high. could, like, <laughs> catapult. Why wouldn't I want to own a meme token? Right. Because there's all these, the market, you know, retail gamblers. The liquid and, stuff was wild, yeah. Yeah. Now, and now we also see a bit of a reversion on things like valuation and Yeah, and, so and things are moving closer to fundamentals. We've yeah. heard a lot of um, big companies, including TradFi banks, say yeah. that they're looking through some of these assets in crypto. Um, yeah. Could be very interesting over the next, uh, you know, the landscape could look a lot different in a couple of years th- as it does today. No, absolutely. And and the regulatory stuff is, is kind of the, the most interesting, right? Yeah. Uh, so, like, you know, in a lot of ways, FTX was bad, but in a lot of ways, it can be good because what we've always thought, you know, as crypto participants is that once the regulatory side clears up, once institutions get a path forward in terms of how they can operate in the space, mm-hmm. um, that's really what's going to get people comfortable. Yeah, and I mean, so as long as there's a rule base, a rule set that people get comfortable with, right? And they have a clear, you know, it's one regulator or it's just two or something. You yeah, know, we very know what simple. the rules are. Forget we know what, what they the are. Rules just we know are. what they are. We know that the tech wins. The rails are better. Yeah, we know uh, that for sure. And so it's 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 really like positive in, in that sense. Well, that's how um you know most of the laws and and regulations that we have in the U.S. for financial markets when when are they all were all written? It was the Securities so, Exchange 1934, yeah, the Forty Act, right? Forty for, Act funds, it's all yeah, right absolutely. after the Great Depression, right? Yeah. So it's very common out of crises to get regulation, and um, you know, we and everyone else were working to make sure that the regulations are good and are, promote safety and transparency, and and of course, don't you know inhibit this great technology and market that we all work in. Um, we'll see a lot more to come on that. Uh, I know. We still haven't even started the new Congress yet, so. Um, in fact, actually, I think technically, while the Senate is now firmly flipped into uh, Democratic hands at 5149, actually, there, I believe there is still a couple of pathways for Democrats to control the House, although it's very unlikely. Um, I don't think it's actually settled yet. Um, 
Anyway, Bimnet of BB from Galaxy Digital Trading, my friend. Thank you as always, uh, and we'll hook up with you again next week. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Christine Kim uh, from Galaxy Research, as always, good to see you. Um, some stuff going on in crypto this week, plenty of it. Let's chat about some of it. I guess start with, uh, I didn't even know this happened, but you were telling me that there was a uh, an Ethereum merge data challenge. Um, I guess, what was that? And it's completed, then we'll f tell me what they found. Yeah, so right at the time of the merge, the Ethereum Foundation opened up this grant program um, saying that anybody who is analyzing the impacts of the merge on Ethereum would be able to win like tens of thousands of dollars. Um, so they've got a bunch of submissions, really great work, everything from like blog posts to full-on reports to just like GitHub entries, uh, looking at validator rewards, MEV, network security, um, and only a couple days ago, they released all the um, submissions and the results. So I think there was like gold tier, silver tier, tier and then bronze, um, and some really cool data that was what that was shared. Anything specifically stand out, like as um, yeah. as uh, telling about the quad? I, mean, I guess this would be uh, is this this is data to show the impact of the merge, basically. Did it go well or what's, you know? Yeah. Like... So I thought one of the ones that maybe <laughs> you'll like is that Ethereum has become more decentralized. Interesting. Thanks to how, proof of stake. How, how is that true? Um, <laughs> yeah, like, I'm not how, saying it isn't true. I'm saying, tell me. I know. That's all right. <laughs> um, so pre-merge, you know, the top 20 block producers generated 95% of all blocks. And that's what? That was pools, basically. So those are mining pools. Like yeah. large mining pools dominated right. block production. Makes sense. Post-merge, the top 20 block producers has drop down generating the percentage blocks has dropped down from 95% pre-merge to now 84% of all blocks because we've got builders and we've also got staking pools. Um, and the largest miner um, mining pool like pre-merge had 28.4% block share. And now after the merge, the largest, oh, I think this is a little typo, but the largest staking pool now has a 23.7% share, which I think is a very great statistic. It just suggests that, you know, we've got more decentralization on the front of block production. Um, and then another interesting one that I thought was really kind of fascinating is that there's no evidence to suggest that large staking pools have a higher rate of return than individual validators. So there was this idea that if you are a large staking pool, then you can do like execute these strategies where like maybe you can extract more MEV than a single validator can um, because you know that you're just going to get a block a higher percentage of the time. And so maybe, um, you know, your your portion of of staked ETH becomes like disproportionately larger than the amount of rewards that you're getting. It's not like proportional to the mm. amount of stake that you have. Mm -hmm. um, but so far, I mean, of, of course, it's like we still have to keep like analyzing. Um, but so far, it doesn't seem like there is really that much of an advantage. Um, okay. So I thought that was really cool. Um, and then finally, another one was that um, this is a no-brainer, but it's just good for data to suggest it. But block builders are consistently outperforming independent validators. So when validators locally build their block just from the mempool, their rate of return, their block rewards is always smaller than you know if you were to rely on a third-party builder. So third-party builders are just already so specialized, so much better at building profitable blocks than validators are, which I think is a great sign that 
um, this idea of validators being like as dumb as possible. You just like run the software. You don't you don't try and specialize at all. It really is panning out. That's so different from the mining industry, which was like all about specialization um, and competition leading to centralized outcomes. Very interesting. Did you um, how, how does the uh, censoring block producer uh, landscape look right now? Is it getting better or worse as well separately? Yeah. So that's also getting a lot better. We're seeing a higher number of non-censoring relays. I think the number of non-censoring relays um, now outnumber the number of censoring relays. I think we saw three new ones this week. We had Agnostic Relay, a relay by Ultrasound, and then one other one that I'm forgetting. Um, mm-hmm. But we're seeing that you know the the number of blocks being produced by Flashbots Relay is still the majority. It's still like I want to say like seventy percent, but it's down um, it's over the down. last couple couple weeks because these other relays are popping yeah. up. Um, so, you know, it's still, it's not like where we want it to be, but I like that the trend is starting to The trend is in the right direction. Yeah. Let's keep it going. Um, interesting stuff. Uh, we're gonna, I want to dig into some of those um, those submissions on yeah. Emerge. That's really interesting. It'll be helpful for, you know, a potential report that I write about, you know, the impact of the merge. It's well, really yeah. great material that's Absolutely. been and, published. And the crowdsourced. Um, yeah. Okay, so here's a couple other things. One thing I saw uh, that was interesting, We I think we talked about this, but Ledger, the maker of the hardware wallets, um, not the Ledger X, the... FTX subsidiary that uh, <laughs> so Ledger hardware wallet manufacturer and and I think they do some institutional custody related stuff as well maybe as a service or technology um, their CEO told the block they intend to try to go public uh, in the U.S. at some point and that their stuff has been they've been seeing huge spikes in in sales that people are buying hardware wallets they're flying off the shelves right now um, I would hope so I mean <laughs> given the outcome of all that's happened in the last couple weeks I like, agree like. Yeah, I mean, okay. Here's a so good good on them. We'll see if that happens. There haven't been a lot of uh, companies that have made it through the um, through the needle, as it were, of going public in the U.S. lately. Any crypto companies, but um, Ledger, big, you know, Ledger and Trezor, the two largest manufacturers. Shout out, by the way, CoinKite uh, that makes the Bitcoin hardware wallet. I like the Cold Card um, and the Block Clock. Um, but Ledger and Trezor are still the big big players in the industry. Um, I think it would be great. I think um, I, I've used their devices for a long time um, and they're good. So congrats on them if they get there. Um, but interesting to see. <laughs> this is a funny one. Um, you remember the Constitution Dow from, I guess, now a year ago. This was a year ago, I believe. That's crazy. Time um, Because we wrote a report. Saul Kadir on our team wrote a report about Dows right around then. And I believe that came out in December of last year. Um, so that what was that? The Dow where they were they raised money and they were going to try to buy a, a, a an original copy of yep. the U.S. Constitution. I guess the Constitution uh, when it was published was like hand copied, like a bunch, uh, like you know, I'm making this up, but I think it was like 40 or so copies were made to like distribute to the states so they could all have a copy or whatever. I um, mean, one of the original ones was up for auction and a Dow formed, and I think they raised like 40 plus million dollars, um, but then they were outbid by Ken Griffith, the CEO of Citadel. Uh, Securities. Um, you and Saul were in the office we when were. the auction was happening. And do you remember the confusion I around know. who actually was bidding on behalf of Constitution Dow? Yeah, because a Dow can't like pick up the phone and call, right? This is a really interesting thing about um, now. There are ways, particularly in places I believe like Wyoming, which has a very good and interesting law. Um, on DAOs, both that, that limits the liability of the DAO members, but also gives it, um, and uh, I forget, has a legal mechanism such that a DAO could hire a, a real life attorney and then they could act on their behalf. 
Um, but actually, if I recall, uh, this was FTX that was bidding on the DAO's behalf. So they had actually contracted with FTX, I believe, to actually call. I can't remember if it was Christie's or Sotheby's, whichever one it was, but like to actually call in and be like, we're the DAO. Like we're bidding like, you know, 22, 23, 24 million. Um, they ended up losing that DAO. Um, and then the, the there was a they losing that auction. But then there was um, some shenanigans where like the DAO, the, the coins for the DAO went up in value a lot, even though like it was useless. And the, they returned the money. But actually, the Constitution DAO tokens like appreciated significantly briefly, not even like super briefly in crypto terms, like over a period of days. Some people made a lot of money, uh, which is bizarre. So it had no purpose and it had returned all the money. But oh, so I even got there. So there's now there's Constitution DAO two. What's what's different about this one? Um, they're selling NFTs, uh, I guess, to buy maybe to raise the funds. Um, it says uh, <laughs> they also want to purchase a rare copy of the U.S. Constitution. Um, this is from the block. It was formed out of the last project, so I guess it is the same group or maybe some of the same people. Um, they had raised the original one raised forty seven million, and the auction was at Sotheby's. Um, but, uh, this one will buy, let's see, um, <laughs> they're going to raise money selling NFTs and then use the money to buy the, buy the, uh, thing. this doesn't sound that different. This seems like it's a repeat of it. <laughs> okay. But I remember that after this, there was actually a bunch of development that happened around privacy protocols for DAOs so that like the bids would yes, not be revealed. Because that, that's one of the big things because everyone on earth knew exactly, exactly theoretically what their max had. bid was. Yeah. 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 So I remember there being a privacy service and applications being like, we want to target our product just specifically for DAOs. And speaking of DAOs, please do go check out our awesome report about DAOs on galaxy.com because we do have a good report yeah, on that. And this one um, just is going to, uh, you're right, they're going to partner with Nucleo and Aztec Network apparently, which Aztec. are both privacy-focused crypto projects, um, which I guess will hopefully allow them to fund it privately so that the rest of the world doesn't know their max bid. Um, Weird, interesting stuff. Um, I guess lastly, we don't have a lot of time here, but um, uh, an investment firm, Furtree, is suing Grayscale, um, seeking information from Grayscale, um, and alleging that, uh, the, I know a bunch of things, Grayscale, obviously the issuer, uh, or sorry, the um, manager of GBTC, the Grayscale Bitcoin Investment Trust, as well as a bunch of other ones, including an ETH one and a bunch of other really long tail ones. I don't know why. Um, but they're, they're alleging things like, one, um, that they could open the redemption window at any time, right? Um, even which is sort of opposite of what Grayscale has uh, at least implied. Um, they're also alleging general like poor management of the firm and the trust itself, the Grayscale Bitcoin Investment Trust. Um, very interesting lawsuit. Um, so re read about it in our newsletter that came out today. Um, we'll cover it more in depth there. But they did the first line of the of the suit, I believe, is that the era. It says the age of unaccountability in digital asset markets is over. Um, well, gosh, independent of this suit, let's hope that's true. Um, but it would be an interesting one to follow. Definitely. Quick break for our listeners. Uh, we had no poll last week, but thank you to our listeners who emailed us in comments and ideas for the show. Uh, to research at galaxy.com, which you can do anytime. Um, also hit us up on Twitter at GLXY Research. This week, we do have a poll. It is pinned to our Twitter profile. The question is, do you think Constitution Dow 2 
will succeed in purchasing a rare copy of the U.S. Constitution? Yes or no? Hit us up again at GLXY Research on Twitter and make your voice heard. We'll read the results next week. Now back to the show. Welcome, Caitlin Long, our guest, the founder and CEO of Custodia Bank, um, a special purpose depository institution in the state of Wyoming, um, longtime Bitcoiner and advocate for digital assets and, and quality custody. Caitlin, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here. Good to see you. Thank you. Yeah, um, I was really excited to have you on um, in general, but but in particular during this period in the markets, which have been obviously marked by um, a crisis of credit. And, and contagion. Um, I mean, going back to the spring, but but of course now with FTX, which I don't even know, to be honest, if it's fair. Certainly credit was related, but it believes we think theft also related. But um, so I'm really excited to have you on here. Um, tell us tell us uh, who uh, who you are and what Custodia is so that for our audience members who do not know. Uh, yep. Gosh, uh, Wyoming native spent almost 30 years in New York of which 22 were on Wall Street in senior roles, Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, uh, and then came back home to Wyoming, uh, moved back here three years ago, but a couple of years before that started to, to work on a legal and regulatory regime to define the legal status of digital assets. It sounds like it's something that's so meaningless, but in fact, actually, it's foundational. And uh, what we're learning in the bankruptcies of some of the digital asset intermediaries is that because they happen in states that didn't clarify what is a digital asset, the judges have no roadmap for oh. determining who owns what in the bankruptcy, and it's a mess. And our goal in Wyoming was to forestall that so that this industry had a strong foundation on which to build. And we're still we're still building it. It's taken longer in some instances because, in part, the special purpose depository institutions have been stalled by federal regulators. But uh, it's it's a solid foundation upon which to build. Yeah, that's it's so interesting. You mentioned sort of like the taxonomy or, or definitions um, and how important that stuff is. Um, you know, it seems sort of mundane, I think, when you're looking at stuff we can do, right? You know, if we're going to write a bill, like, yeah. it's like, well, let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to the good stuff. And it's like, whoa, 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 we should actually just define what the heck we're even talking about. Um, right. Yeah. And, and, especially, and then things like control and ownership and um, et cetera. So, um, but that, has anything stuck out to you? Anything in particular from these various bankruptcies that we're, we've seen? Obviously, with FTX, we have BlockFi. Those are the new ones. But you had Celsius and Voyager as well, and and Three AC is also in bankruptcy, right? And, and probably others that I'm unaware of, right? But those are the big ones. Right. Is anything in particular stuck out to you, like along of a of a quirk of law, like you mentioned definitions or something else? It's not clear who owns what. <laughs> that's that's the problem, and that's exactly the problem that Wyoming set out to solve as the boring foundational <laughs> um, the infrastructure. And 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 most folks think they own the financial assets that they've deposited into a financial institution, and in fact, they don't. What you own is an IOU. So it's purely an IOU to a credit. I mean, that's why I was going to ask you, like a bank. Like, if I have money in a bank right now, let's say I walk into, um, you know, any local bank. Let's not, but my local bank branch, and I deposit a thousand dollars in cash. I don't own that money anymore. You've legally lent it to your bank, just like with your securities. You've legally lent it to your broker dealer, and they owe it back to you. And the terms on which they owe it back to you may vary, whether it's a demand deposit or a savings deposit that they can put a gate around. 
Um, but you're not legally owning the base property. What you own is a contractual right, not a property right. And that has huge implications, especially in the securities industry. Yeah. And so how does that when you when you set out to build custodia, which, again, it's a it's an SPDI, which is a special purpose depository institution. But right. I mean, is it fair to say shorthand? It's a bank, right? That's a type of bank or is it? Yes, it's absolutely a bank. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so um, I'm, I'm yes. going to start calling it a bank for the purposes of this podcast rather than the legal technical term, which we know, which I've shared. Um, so why then? How does how does that how are you addressing that or why why a bank and not, you know, a crypto custodian or a Bitcoin custodian as the ones we know already exist? What is interesting about doing a bank for this? Or just in general? It does get at this very foundational question, which is who owns the assets? And and uh, it turns out in most custodians, this, there was a lot of brouhaha in the spring when the SEC required Coinbase to disclose that in bankruptcy, that you might think those assets are yours, but in fact, actually, they're likely to be commingled with everybody else's assets in a bankruptcy. And here's why. When you own a contractual right, one of the first things a bankruptcy judge can do is break a contract. So you may have a contract to segregate your assets with a custodian, but a bankruptcy judge could come in and break that segregation at precisely the moment when you really needed to rely on it. So one of the things about banks and broker dealers in the United States is that they do have special receivership rules that protect the segregation of assets by statute. And Wyoming went a step further with the special purpose depository institutions and said, if the customer chooses a bailment, that it's not even a question of protecting the segregation of the assets. The title, the legal title to the asset never, never changed hands. So this is going to blow a, full, a few folks' minds because a lot of folks look at crypto and say, not your keys, not your coins. But in fact, actually, you can separate out the title, the legal title to the asset from who controls the private key. And it's the exact same law. It's called bailment. It's a common law. Uh, term. It's been around for hundreds of years uh, in, in English common law. And it, it, it's a, the exact same law that applies to valet parking for your car or a coat check. I see. When you park your car at a garage, you're not turning title to the car over to the garage. You're just giving them temporary possession of it for safekeeping. And they can do one and only one thing, which is park the car in the garage. They can't turn around and take it for a joyride. Lend they the car. They can't rent lend it, it out to Uber. <laughs> yeah, a absolutely. It's, it's, they can, it, they, you can do one and only one thing, which is what the owner who has the title directs you to do. And it, we should be doing this with financial assets, but due to a, a quirk of how financial assets got digitized, they started out in paper. The security started out in paper. And then we had the paperwork crisis mm -hmm. in, in, the, in the early, early 1970s. And then it all got dematerialized. And so it became just ledger, just book entries. Um, and then we've now gone to some form of digitization, but we digitized the analog data. Um, we haven't gone to natively digital securities yet. And we're going there. We, we're going to get there, I'm sure. But, um, but ultimately, what it means is that what you own in your brokerage account, just like what you own in your bank, is an IOU. And that financial intermediary may or may not actually have in its inventory enough to pay you back when you demand it back. That's that's the problem. That is so interesting. Um, a great analogy too with the, um, I guess the parking garage, right? I mean, if they go bankrupt as a business and they close their doors, the the, the cars sitting there are not on their balance sheet, right? They have to give Bingo. those back to us. Um, yep. And that is unique to Wyoming with digital assets. We understood in Wyoming that 
these are bearer instruments. And so we have an opportunity to, to take these financial assets and turn them into real property, not, not real property as in physical, tangible, the legal property. term, but just true property. Yeah, Ex exactly. And, and, and allow the, the bail, the law of bailment, the same thing that applies to the valet parking to apply to your financial asset. It's what used to be the, the law when banks were money warehouses, gold warehouses. It used to be that when you deposited your gold in the 1800s in a bank, it was legally yours. And you could go take it out at any moment in time, even if the bank went bankrupt. And so that's the concept. And it's it seems so fair and so basic and foundational. And yet that's not the basis upon which the, the traditional financial system, whether it be banking or um, securities, is built um, and and we can and will go back to that basic foundation. And there's we've talked in the past, you and I have, mm -hmm. about um, the means by which, because the system is built the way that it is, the traditional financial system, you get situations like the Dole Food case, where in 2017, Dole Food was taken over, the pineapple company, and it turned out that there were more than one-third extra Dole Food shares that people had brokerage statements <laughs> showing that they owned than actual dole food shares oh outstanding. Okay, so the bookkeeping systems of Wall Street on occasion can get really that far out of whack. One third more shareholders. And what that meant to me when I learned that was that regular mom and pop investors were having their pockets picked. Right. And sure enough, because by the way, they thought they were buying real dole food shares, but what were, what they were buying was fake supply. Oh, Anytime <laughs> you, you create additional supply, it's going to push the price down, right? So the legitimate owners of... Dole Food shares had their pockets picked, and and it turns out that there are hedge funds out there who know how to arbitrage these anomalies in the system and make money off them. And this is just fundamentally unfair and wrong. And so one of the things that attracted me to to Bitcoin was that I saw that this was this was a means by which we can get back to an honest ledger that can't be manipulated by nefarious players or even by accident through fault tolerances that have been built into the system over the years, like failures to deliver, like in the ETF world, market makers can are, are allowed to go naked short. They can sell more units in the ETF than the actual inventory that they have in inventory. All these kinds of things create price anomalies. And what we really want to get back to is a basic approach of let's respect property rights in financial assets so we have an honest ledger again. It's not a radical concept. But uh, it is not how the financial system works today. <laughs> I, I love it. You're right. It, it you make it sound extremely reasonable, and and it and it is. Um, and and that's so that forms the basis then of custodia's bank. What is custodia going to then do as for products or for um, you know services that they provide as a bank? You're going to store Bitcoin, uh, right? Well, if I, it's I, all I'm assuming you're going to be able to store some Bitcoin for me. Yep, it's all on our website. It's U.S. Dollar Services, traditional ACH and Fedwire, as well as custody for Bitcoin and Ethereum, and uh, and then those are the two building blocks for Avit, our U.S. Dollar instrument, right. uh, which we have publicly disclosed. We plan to issue both on Bitcoin through the liquid sidechain, and then as an ERC twenty token as well. And that's that is essentially a state. I, I don't want to call it stable coin. And and actually, why don't you correct me because I've heard you talk about this before, right? Typically, we think of a stable coin as a floating token that is backed by some amount of collateral, and usually through some kind of create redeem, it's meant to track the price of a dollar. Um, is that what you guys? Is that what Avid is, or is it something different? 
It's not, and and uh, uh, it's it, it's very different. It's structured as a you have to be a bank to issue this mm -hmm. for the first in, in the first place. It's it's structured legally very differently than a stablecoin is is structured, uh, and then the rights and obligations of the parties are of course quite different because it's a bank that would be issuing it, uh, and it literally would be a U.S. dollar. It's structured as a a, a digital in effect a digital cashier's check. So cashier's checks, there's a lot of law behind cashier's checks uh, and, and cashier's checks are right now, it, the law is geared towards them issued in paper form, but what Avid is, is structured to be is a digital version of that. Uh, and therefore, because it's issued by, by uh, and, and banks are a particular type of corporation bestowed by the government with the ability to issue dollars, uh, then, then this canon should be treated as a dollar. To be clear, we are not yet approved to issue it, and and we have not issued it yet. We did, however, get a patent. We've been in, our our applications have been Let's pending go. that long that we actually were able to get a patent on <laughs> on on the basic process by which a bank has uh, has uh, accepted a U.S. dollar deposit and issued a token on a permissionless blockchain in exchange for that US dollar deposit. And so that patent was granted to Custodia in July. Congrats. Um, and, and I do love, by the way, uh, I love the name Custodia. I think it's an excellent name for it. I think it really, um, it, it both gives a, it gives a, a an easy um, explanation for what you guys do, but it also, it has that sort of really yep. uplifting, um, futuristic vibe to it. it sounds like, um, like a, like a, a metropolis. I don't know the words that are coming to mind, which I, which I really like. It's a, it's sort of a, it's a return <laughs> to, you. uh, to good property rights. Um, but it has this futuristic sound to it, which I really like. Um, just to, as Thank an aside. Yeah, we're looking forward to rolling <laughs> up sleeves and um, getting, uh, getting open. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, gosh, there's a lot of things I want to ask you about, um, but I, let's stick on the let's stick on the the stable coins for a moment because, um, you know, this would be a tokenized dollar, we'll say, or token mm -hmm. version of a bank receipt, as you said, or a cashier's check. Um, that's a lot of a lot different structure than the sort of pseudo money market funds. Um, certainly, yours would be issued by Custodia. A, a, uh, a registered and regulated bank, um, not a, you know, Correct. I'm not calling anyone in particular out here, but not say an offshore, uh, <laughs> opaque, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so, um, what do you think, what are your thoughts on stables generally? And let me ask this a couple of ways. I'll start with though, um, leaving aside some of the structure questions, you know, are these, um, are these, do these extend the reach of the dollar? Is it good for the dollar in general? For is it good for America that ninety nine point five percent of them are dollars? Um, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and I I got to give a hat tip to Nick Carter here because he was the first to write the essay that I was thinking, which is this is actually going to extend the U.S. dollar's reign as reserve currency uh, because basically the technology that most U.S. dollars move on today is. 1970s technology right i mean because this, so this, this is, is just better tech why, clearly absolutely and 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 you know we the u.s was falling pretty far behind in in in, in international circles um it's kind of a laughing stock for how far behind its payment technology has fallen and and if you look at the PIX system in brazil for example it blows away <laughs> the ach and fedwire systems in the u.s and swift as yeah. well 
and uh, and and yet, you know, the, you know, the U.S. is the reserve currency, and it, it, the the technology does matter. The U.S. cannot rest on its laurels forever, and part of the reason the U.S. cannot rest on its laurels forever is that businesses have gone global. And this, of course, has been happening with globalization for a couple decades, few decades. But uh, but the corporate treasurers aren't necessarily patriots in the sense that they're they're only going to you know continue to stick with if it's a U.S. based company, the U.S. dollar. No, they're going to use the currency that is the cheapest currency for them to transact in. Right. And has the and 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 and, and it's not just the currency itself; it's how the money moves. So, in other words, the payment systems, the payment technologies matter a lot. They're integral to the, the currency itself. And as a result, um, if it turns out that, you know, I, 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 I said this years ago, among the, the three super regional central banks, what I mean by that is the US is the one that covers the Americas. Um, the Bank of Japan is the one that covers Asia. And then the Bank of England, at least still as of today, is the one that covers Europe. They're the three super regional not central the, banks. Not the ECB? The ones, not the ECB, although that, although that is changing because yeah. of Brexit. But right now, it's still the, the the basically what happens is the cheapest routing for foreign exchange payments I is see. going to hit one of those three central banks. Um, and and uh, you know if if a, if if money's coming from France to the U.S., it's it's probably at least in the in, until Brexit, um, it was either going to go through the Bank of England to the U.S. or it was going to go to, through the Fed. To the U.S. Ultimately, it has to go through the Fed as well. But the, the point is that there's a there's an intermediary currency in there because it's the cheapest routing method for I foreign see. exchange execution because the the biggest liquidity has historically been in those three super regional central banks. And so the cheapest bid offer, the best yep. execution, is going to be to put it through those extra hops. Um, and and just because there's not much liquidity, for example, in the Thai bot, right? Right. So it's going to have to go through the Bank of Japan um, before it comes to the U.S. So ultimately, that's that's how the foreign exchange market works. And my point is, if you're a U.S.-based company and suddenly there's an e-version of the yen that is accepted globally, all of a sudden everybody's going to move to that. And and the corporate treasurers, that you know, they'll deal with the foreign exchange even right, if the even U.S. If you, dollar reporting, right, they'll, they'll deal with the foreign exchange. I see. You're saying they'll they'll use it for rails alone if they have to, just as a bridge. Yes. Bridge, yeah. Yes. And if our bridge, Absolutely. it might be the best the asset they ultimately want to hold on either side, perhaps. But if the bridge is just really clogged and slow or crumbling. Or right. you know, old and overgrown, yeah. or whatever. Um, then, then they'll just right. use a different bridge, and, and it should be our. I mean, come on, let's. And and, and would that even? It should be the U.S. dollar. Yeah, and would yeah. that even erode? You think over, even if they still want to hold, send the dollar and receive the dollar, but if we lose the bridge being dollar based, um, does that over time erode the likelihood of them actually wanting to hold the dollar too, or are they? Do you see them as distinct? Of course, it does. Of course it does. Now, now the U.S. dollar reporting companies will still always want to hold right. U.S. dollars just to minimize the foreign exchange risk. But the, the markets are so liquid that they can even um, through through swaps uh, minimize that foreign exchange risk, even if they're mostly transacting in that example in yen. But this is important for the crypto markets because I am a huge fan of Bitcoin as an intermediary currency. It are at one point it got up to the eleventh largest currency in the world. I can't. I don't know where it is today, but it's, it's lower. It's but, but yeah, it got pretty big. Into, yeah, it's, and it's already starting to break in as an intermediary currency. And and at the end of the day, those of us in this market, I, I'm not interested in the leverage and the trading. I think all that is just corrupt and it's not going to survive, especially the leverage games. But what I am interested in is the technology for moving money and solving the real world problems for the 
corporate treasurers that I used to work with who had real world pain points, right? And, and, and there's a lot of pain. It's not just the cost and the time. It's also the trapped capital that these corporate treasurers had to deal with because um, I wrote a, a piece, for example, uh, back in 2015, 2016, about my work with Seagate, um, the CFO of Seagate, um, global supply chain. Most of their manufacturing, at, at least at the time, I suspect it still is, is in Thailand. And it took them six days to move money from their Thai subsidiary to the U.S. parent. This is their <laughs> own money. OK, so for them to be able to move intraday was an enormous improvement, yeah. right? To be able to go at the speed of light using something like the Lightning Network. That's great. What we really need to do, though, is work on the engineering and get all this ready to go so that yeah. we can start getting real world volumes and it we're getting there one of the best things that's happened this year is that lightning is scaling and yeah. lightning is scaling bitcoin and and i i analogize it to what happened with voice over internet protocol back in 1995 when it was invented everybody poo-pooed it and said it'll never work <laughs> because it can't scale well, then broadband came along in 2003, and, and within a few years, all the old copper wire telephone networks were obsolete. And I think that's going to happen when lightning really does tip and you get, it's going to scale Bitcoin, and suddenly these old payment rails are going to become obsolete. And, and the, the real world users of payment systems have such incentive to move money quickly because they don't, they don't have to trap cash. That, that example of Seagate having to trap its own cash in so-called comfort deposits in its <laughs> bank accounts just to move its own money from one subsidiary to another globally it had to basically fully fund that much capital very expensive capital so inefficient for six days ju just to move their own money right yeah. that's a deadweight loss economists would say right it's super inefficient and it's not just the cost or the time it's just how much capital got trapped in the movement of that money. And, and now that we can go to cross-border at the speed of light for essentially free, whoa, that's a game changer. Yeah. And that's why I'm so bullish on Lightning. To be clear, though, Custodia does not have plans at the moment to implement Lightning. We're spending a lot of time oh, looking yeah. at it. But I get it, it is not part of our business plan at the moment. No, you guys have other fish to fry and you're sort of still getting started there too, <laughs> as you know, um, as I, it, yeah. but, but I, I mean, it seems like a no brainer when, you know, when you're up and running, you've got my, you know, I'm, let's say I'm a, a what's the term uh, for a, a, the, what are the demographic term for a Wyoming, a Wyomingite, uh, uh, Wyomingite, a yes. Wyomingite, not a <laughs> Wyoming. Um, <laughs> um, if I'm a Wyoming Knight, I've got a custodia account and you're holding my Bitcoin and I know that it's legally still my property, which I really like. Um, eventually we start asking for other stuff. I mean, maybe I got some basic banking services. I got an ATM or something, or come in and, you know, do you guys, you guys, like you said, you said U.S. dollar services. So I'm assuming I can have a, have a cash account and write checks on it, have a debit card. Um, once you guys are like right in that end state, but not all that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, eventually, the services maybe. are, well, first of all, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's Actually, businesses I guess I, only. It, um, oh, it's business. Would you say it's business only? Yeah, businesses only. Got it. Uh, starting out with U.S. businesses only, uh, eventually moving to non-U.S. But uh, we're we're really basically meant to be a back-end payments bank. I see. Um, and and the custody is an important piece of that, right? Because you can't 
provide the, you can't use the technology unless you can provide custody services for it. And obviously qualified custodian as a bank Mm -hmm. is a very important piece of, of the, of the business strategy. And there are a number of people out there saying, uh, I think I saw Bill Ackman saying custody has got to get solved for this business to really take off. And to your earlier question, the legal structure used by the custodians that exist today is not consumer friendly. You've got to be a bank or a broker dealer in order to have the special receivership regime. Right. And the that's, money that's a remoteness, like a bankruptcy remoteness that you really right. need, you want, right? I mean, we want you being but, depositor of digital assets into a custodian. It's essential. I mean, in my mind, really. Absolutely. And the SEC has historically frowned on trust companies. Trust companies at least have a better argument for segregation, but it's still murky with trust companies in in receivership. Uh, It's not murky with banks and broker dealers where there's statutory protection for asset segregation. And this is why the SEC has historically frowned on trust companies as qualified custodians uh, and said the only trust companies who can truly be a qualified custodian under the SEC's custody rule are those that provide fiduciary services. But the the custodians that provide custody for crypto today aren't fiduciaries. And so they don't qualify under under that rule. It hasn't been tested in court, but um, yeah. but it, the SEC has made it pretty clear. They want the custodians to be banks and broker dealers, but here's the irony. The federal regulators aren't letting the banks through and the SEC is not letting special purpose broker dealers through either. Yeah. So what the, it's pretty clear the answer to all this is that there have to be special purpose banks and special purpose broker dealers to service this industry. These assets are quite different than traditional financial assets for reasons um, among which we've already discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, but But most importantly, in the banking world, as you know, these assets move at the speed of light. Yeah. Um, and when we saw the collapse of Terra Luna and the the um, collapse of HUSD and its managed delisting gone awry. These things collapsed within six hours. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, there's a custodia advisor who published a piece on American Banker today saying, look, the Fed needs to put the banks that are handling digital assets through a stress test where they have 100% withdrawals of all their digital assets, uh, deposits related to digital assets within six hours. And I don't think really any traditional bank today <laughs> would would be able to survive something like that. Yeah, and you're right. The speed is just, to, just totally different of this, and and especially it's, like exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And she points out, and I agree with her. Traditional assets and digital assets just don't behave the same. So you've you, so the whole idea, and there's a there's a really interesting proposal um, from Howell Jackson of Harvard Law School and Tim Massad of the Kennedy School. I was going to raise Dan this with Ari you uh, about Tim Massad, right? Tim Massad, uh, was he a former CFTC commissioner? He was former CFTC. And they're proposing a special purpose bank subsidiary that says you've got to ring fence this from the insured deposit system because you don't want it to leak in. They really do. These assets really do behave very differently. And the banks are just not set up for these fast settling assets, for sure. That is so interesting. Yeah, I think was was Tim Mossad was saying um, I, I, we were watching something with him just recently about this paper, right, that they released. Yes, um, and that's exactly they're, what they're, they're suggesting about. Yeah. that like the regulated stablecoin market can also can be ring fenced just under existing regulatory authority. It doesn't require congressional action in their view, um, which is interesting. Yeah, I debated with them a little bit because what they wanted to use was an OCC trust company. And if you look at the OCC trust company capital requirements, they're very thin. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's it's I I think it I think it probably does require 
congressional authorization. And then, of course, they look at the structure that Custodia has, which is a state charter, uh, which is which is really quite similar to what they ended up recommending and where the the president's working group is coming out as well. Originally, the president's working group in the U.S. said, oh, no, everything has to be issued by insured depository. I saw that. This was their paper last they- fall. They said all IDIs. And and there was some stuff that was yeah. good there and that like they were basically acknowledging yeah, that the sure. private markets would be the, where the stable coin, the dollar coins would come from and that it wouldn't be a, like a centrally issued CBDC, which was good. But yes, yep. the IDI is, yep. we were like, there's no IDI doing it currently, to be honest. There's not one. So you're kind of saying no one can do it at least right now, yes. <laughs> um, right? Like you're, you're, you're basically knocking out the custodias and the, and l- let alone the circles and the tethers and the Paxoses, none of whom are actually like any of, so it's like you're regulating a market that doesn't, right. you're out of existence briefly at least. And then you're also- Perfect catch 22. Yeah, anyway, so- Yeah, we, except, but then they walk back that proposal when they understood him and you started to see the OCC acting comptroller, Michael Sue yeah. talk about, no, there's too much intraday- liquidity risk. And you know, we're already arguably seeing that. Um, uh, the, the borrowings at the Fed's discount window have popped up. They're still very, very small, but there's some speculation. I don't know the answer to it. I'm just pointing to the fact that some bank experts over the weekend were speculating that that maybe the, the discount window borrowings might be coming from stress in the banks that were serving the digital asset industry. I just saw Morgan Stanley yesterday predicted that in one bank's case that they would lose 60% of their deposits within Q4. Um, and a lot of that would have been withdrawn intraday. Uh, and so again, this intraday risk, um, that's what the president's working group missed in its initial proposal. They've backed off it. So you know, the so-called Overton window of what mm-hmm. could be done here is these special purpose ring-fenced banks, which is exactly what the Wyoming S- special purpose depository institutions yeah. are. And I think there's going to be a companion version of them um, for broker-dealers as well. You really Very can't cool. fit the, ra- the round peg into the square hole. You can't use these traditional structures, which yeah. is why they haven't been used. Yeah. Um, because the risk management doesn't work, but you also do want the protections for consumers of the special asset segregation and receivership of banks and broker dealers. So yeah, you do. I think we're going to get there in the U.S. That's my that's, well, uh, that's, that's my the, guess, but we don't know. No, I mean, I we don't know, and we're we're not really at the national level appearing to make much progress right now. Um, but but <laughs> Wyoming absolutely stands out, and and I know you and many other people worked on on putting that law together. And and um, is it being exported out into other states? I've seen um, that that certainly some have tried. Like so, the language is getting out there. I don't know. Is it being adopted yet by any other states? Oh, yes, it is. Um, well, first of all, the the foundational work that we did on commercial law right. has been adopted at a, at a national level. It took about 18 months for the Uniform Law Commission to stop criticizing Wyoming. And in fact, at one point, I had this silent moment of, of triumph when on a, on a relatively small group call, the, the Uniform Law Commission group um, saluted Wyoming for its pioneering work. And, and, and the Uniform Law Commission article, it's called UCC Article 12, that is now being percolated out about uh, all 50 states. So I think only five states that have that have enacted a, a version of it, Wyoming included. And boy, at the beginning, the bankruptcy mess in those other states that haven't, impl- haven't enacted this is going to be brutal. Oh, man. Uh, but, um, but for the states that have enacted it, you've got some clarity so the judges have, have a roadmap. That's a, a, an example where 
or Wyoming's work did end up going nationwide. Um, right. And the special purpose depository institutions in a few states they've tried. Right. Um, but but the bank industry was too powerful in the states where they tried. <laughs> and it ended up either stripping the most important aspect of it, which is that these have to be depository institutions or ended up getting it killed. They're trying in Texas and Florida right now. Um, in Nebraska, they stripped the depository institution piece from it. Why is that so important? Because in order to be eligible for a Fed master account, you've got to be a depository institution. Mm. And so the banking industry um, is is clued into this now and yeah. is using at the local level their lobbying prowess well, to, it's, it's no to, surprise, strip, right? to, to I mean, strip it. So it's no surprise. Yeah. I mean, um, but but I it doesn't seem like that's a that's a line they're going to be able to successfully hold because I feel a wave building uh, behind you and everyone else working on this. And it seems like it's only getting stronger. Um, a couple other questions to raise that I thought I wanted to get your take on, you know, in the wake of FTX in particular, which, you know, we'll say crypto exchange, right? And obviously, um, yeah. I, I don't, we don't call well. them a custodian because <laughs> that's not what their like primary thing was. But of course, they custodied. Well, I don't know if they really did at FTX, it looks like, but at a crypto exchange <laughs> right. custodies assets um, yeah. on behalf of its users. And we always, you know, there's Bitcoiners have been advocating on like January 3rd every year, like pull all your coins down from exchange. First of all, always pull them down is what everyone says. And I yeah, completely agree, right. completely agree. Um, but, yeah. you know, to stress test and, and we know now that of course FTX didn't have any, any of any of, or a large portion of, of its users assets, including which we've talked about, of course, galaxy, you know, and, and, and customers who were not lending into their margin pool. So like those assets were supposed to be, it's one thing if I'm agreeing to lend you my assets and saying, I no longer have title to them, you're doing something. And then for you to, you know, screw up. I mean, that's, that's one thing. It's not good, obviously, but it's, it's a right, whole, whole other thing if you're supposed to be custodying it. So anyway, in the wake of this though, um, and, I, and I love your take on this. A lot of people have been talking about proof of reserves, our friend, Nick Carter as well, as you know, mm -hmm. who's been a longtime advocate for it. Yes. I really like this. Um, if you're that type of business, but it kind of seems to me that you, uh, Custodia and Wyoming's uh, digital property rights thing in some ways m should make this a little bit moot. It's not like you wouldn't maybe also do it, but like, can you square these two things for me? And, and what are your thoughts on proof of reserve? Well, guess what? The proof of reserves are in the Wyoming digital asset custody rules. They've been there since 2019. <laughs> so, oh, let's go. I didn't know that. Yes. Um, what, that is Wyoming part of leads the way again. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, because ultimately, if we step back, how is it that Wyoming was so far ahead? It's very simple. It was keeping to the ethos of Bitcoin, keeping to the simple but foundational and oh so important observation that one should have a property right in a financial asset. It shouldn't have to be a, con a contractual right, an IOU, in other words. Yep. It should be a property right. And so, um, and so the audit questions that go along with that are very important. And um, and then, of course, there have to be Wyoming's special purpose depository institutions are subject to traditional audit requirements. Frankly. Custodia has been audited since our first year. We've had, we, we, you know, all of us are required to be audited financial institutions, but also uh, the, there's the proof of reserve once, once we do get into um, uh, uh, custodying digital assets, uh, there is the proof of reserves requirements. And it's so interesting, Jesse Powell uh, has, has had some very interesting back and forth with CZ over, hey, proof of reserves is not a panacea. Jameson Lopp has had some good things to add to Nick's observations as well. It's not a panacea because ultimately somebody, you still are trusting whoever is, is doing the proof of reserves. Yeah. 
And it doesn't show proof of liabilities either. Yeah, there are um, standards, it, I think, for how you can do a liability side of that audit. But of course, they're not cryptographic, right? I mean, we can't right. really. And you are yeah. trusting an auditor. Yeah, exactly. Correct. But I, it's I agree. better than nothing, though. I, I yeah. have liked um, Jesse. I've seen Jesse's back and forth with CZ. And and, and look, you know, CZ, um, he's called for it. And he's called for it in yes. pretty technical terms, which is great, yep. right? He said, Merkelized cryptographic proof of reserve. Yep. We're like, okay, great. Like, if he's calling for that, it seems like the he is talking about the actual thing that the yes. market wants, um, but they haven't done it yet. Um, that what they've provided so far has been uh, has left a fair amount to be desired. Um, he did, however, do one at OKX when he was the CTO in 2014, which is very interesting. So it's not like he doesn't know how to do it. Um, but right. I agree. And, well, and Kraken has done it several times now as well, and they've done indeed. it quite well. Um, and and this is a great thing. I, I, I love the fact that the industry is moving towards this now. We should have done this years ago. Um, and those of us who were proponents of full reserve banks, full reserve custodians, full reserve exchanges, prove that you're solvent. Yep. Um, those of us who all along have been singing that exact same tune consistently have been challenging intermediaries to do this. And what happened is, is that it, it's, it, so few did. This is where there's historically been a debate between the Rothbardians and the free bankers. Yeah. And one of the biggest differences between the two is that there's information asymmetry in financial institutions. And that's the hardest part of, of the free banking argument is that you've got, it works as long as you have perfect information, but that just doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, all these intermediaries could have been audited. They could have been disclosing cryptographic proof of reserves. They could have voluntarily offered um, financial information about their solvency and they didn't. And in retrospect, we now know not only were many of them not solvent all along, but um, the yields that people thought they were earning that were really fat weren't even remotely high enough to, to compensate the consumers for the counterparty credit risk that they were taking. Yep. And I was trying to warn folks that you know 20% yields might not even remotely be enough. And it turned out that in retrospect, unfortunately, they weren't. Yeah, you've been on this um, point for a long time, and I think very well vindicated by a lot of the events that ultimately have transpired with these lenders. Um, I understand at, at its core, too, your, with your um, your view of property rights makes things like rehypothecation totally insane, illegal, crazy, right, in your mind. Um Talk about that a little bit. I mean, I, I don't know, or maybe another way to ask this question is, um, ha has the the credit contagion, does it remind you of anything that you've seen in traditional market history? Because I, <laughs> I see a lot of parallels and maybe that maybe the, the rehypothecation that's gone awry here in, in the crypto markets, um, does that ring any bells? Oh, boy, yeah. So I'll, I'm, I'm going to reveal my age a little bit, but I started on Wall Street during the bond market crash of 1994. Um and uh, saw the the you know Russian default and Asian tiger currency collapse in '97, and then the stock market bubble and collapse in '01, and then um, that built up into the mortgage bubble and and collapse in '08, the repo market um, contagion in '08, the run on the repo market in the Great Financial Crisis, mm -hmm. um, and then we've seen it in Europe. I mean, we, it's, I, we've seen so many of these, and I'm just giving you some of the <laughs> some of the history. But they're all credit bubbles, every one of them, um, and and they ultimately it's all too much leverage ended up creeping into the system, and then it came home to roost. And the triggers for these are always a little bit different and hard to see coming in 
in in down the road, but in retrospect, they're always obvious. Um, mm -hmm. That ultimately, it, what it comes down to is somebody runs out of the ability to service their debt, and once the defaults start happening, they cascade. And and what happens is a lot of folks try to say this is just a liquidity problem. Well, no, not in an asset class like Bitcoin, where there's a finite number of Bitcoins outstanding. There never will be more than mm -hmm. right now, 19.2 million outstanding, never will be more than 21 million eventually. And so a liquidity crisis in an asset like that is the same thing as a solvency crisis. You went insolvent the moment you started leveraging yourself more than one-to-one. -one. And that's that's the bottom line. And um, and, and unfortunately, a lot of folks have, have, have learned that lesson the hard way. But just like in 2008, there really was no such thing as a liquidity crisis. It was a solvency problem all along. The same thing is true here. It's a solvency problem. Interesting. And uh, it's manifesting as a liquidity problem. And it always starts the same. Somebody can't service their debt yep. and then the cascading leverage defaults. So how do you think, Caitlin, I mean, to wrap here, uh, how do you think, um, whether because of the propagation of the Wyoming model, um, which is very favorable in a lot of ways, I think, as you've described it, um, or because of the fallout from this contagion and the various other things, you know, FTX and whatnot, right? We, we tend to see a lot of market regulation written after, you know, market turmoil. You have all, yeah. all the acts in the 30s and 40s came after the Great Depression, right? The, you know, you know all the, the, the Securities Act, the, the, the 40 Act, all, all these. Um, how do you think market infrastructure in crypto looks different, um, you know, five years from today? I'm picking a random number or like in, in sort yeah. of the medium term, but then maybe even in the long term. Well, I think in the medium term, and I hope in the next couple of years, I'm one who says, I hope there's regulation because having been, this is my third crypto winter, winter and, it, <laughs> and we saw the Gox collapse in, in my first one in 2014. Then we saw the Quadriga collapse in 2018, and then the slew of collapses in 2022. They go on four-year cycles. That's not an accident. It's because Bitcoin itself has a very distinct fundamental four-year cycle, and I don't think that's changed. Okay, so we're going to be going into a bull market again if that, if past this prologue which I believe it will be because it's fundamental. We're, we'll be going into a bull market again in a couple of years. And what I fear is that in each of those four-year four cycles that I just described, mm -hmm. the, 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 the audacity of the, of the crimes and the outright just criminal activity and scams and risky business models that propagated in the bull markets got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I do believe that it's time to step in with a property rights oriented regulatory regime that greenlights the good guys who, by the way, we've been on the sidelines through all this, mm -hmm. sidelined because of, of the regulatory inaction. Um, and there are a number of us who really, truly are trying to work with the regulators, get permission for everything we do. It's a small number of us, but <laughs> um, but our, our day is coming, I do believe. And, I, and so to answer your question directly, I think there will be special purpose banks and special purpose broker dealers, and you will end up basically you'll you'll never just like the internet itself, right? With Tor and 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 you know dark web, there will be dark markets here that will never be able to be shut down. I I, I saw somebody's tweet, and I can't remember who it was. That um, I think it was Mark Andreessen. Software is really 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 hard to regulate. Mm -hmm. You can't. It's speech. You can't shut it down. What you can do is create. Um, easier pathways to the lit markets, the legal markets, where the mainstream is going to transact. And ultimately, that's where I think these special purpose banks and special purpose broker dealers will come out. I'm sympathetic 
to the concern that everybody always raises, which is that the regulators get captured. And so I think as long as the, as long as the, the regulation is very property rights focused, it's going to be tougher to capture a regulator. Um, and, and, you know, we see that, right? That even so Custodia applied to become a Fed member bank. Well, we're seeing Fed member banks be allowed to wave in to doing crypto activities just simply because they were already Fed member banks, whereas Custodia as a Fed member bank, leaving our master account dis discussion aside, we applied to become a Fed member bank mm -hmm. to be directly regulated by the Fed in August 2021. Um, that's now, what, 15, 16 months ago. Yeah, it's a long time. Um, and, uh, and so we have to get permission and get examined first, whereas the incumbents, including Moonstone Bank, which had two employees. I was going to ask you um, about Moonstone. This is the FTX bank that they bought a 10% interest in, right? Right. But they were able to just apparently provide a notice to the Fed under the supervisory letter that the Fed put in place in August. So th there's such a structural advantage for the incumbents versus an upstart that, that has to get permission for everything we do and get examined versus versus the incumbents that, that, is that don't. Ridiculous. They're allowed to just wave in. Yeah, that is ridiculous. Well, I mean, you're, a, but you're way, one that's also purpose built for doing this exact thing. You'd be a lot better at doing it than certainly than a Moonstone, but even than other big banks, I think, that just happen to already be Fed members. Right. This is your exact thing. I mean, look, I'm not going to name any of my any Bitcoiner friends, but I know several employees at Custodia and they're excellent. I know what you built must be great if they were working there. And so, like. You know, some random <laughs> bank just like decides to start doing this and, and the one that's purpose built for it and state regulated, like can't get that's just it is frustrating. That's and that, applied to become federally regulated. That's what I'm saying. Right? Like, well, that's really what I'm complaining about. Let's with go with the federal the, laws. Yeah, let's get the federal yeah. regulation approved. You know, someone I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm pounding the table here. Um, but yes, I, I think that's um, I, I think that vision of the future makes a lot of sense. And I, I agree with you. I think if we're talking about intermediaries, you know, one thing that we were thinking was that, like, you're going to have if you're going to be decentralized, you've got to be literally actually decentralized, fully decentralized, whether it's a, yes. an app or some DeFi application or whatever. And, and to be clear, many don't meet that the standard. I'm talking about a pretty high bar Absolutely. for that standard. Um, right. And if you're going to be centralized, you've got to be you know, fully centralized, regulated, transparent, right? And and I think there cannot be this like ridiculous middle ground of opaque, you know, firms like FTX. I mean, now we know like just how ludicrous that company was. I mean, they didn't even have a board of directors. Correct. <laughs> Thirty valued at thirty-two billion with no board of directors. When I did or these... audited financials, <laughs> or yeah. yeah, yes. So um, somewhere there can't be that middle ground. And and I absolutely think if you're, you know, you can't regulate the Bitcoin protocol. It's not. I mean, you can try, but it's not going to do much or work probably. Right. Correct. Um, and I think, but you can regulate the intermediaries that sit on top of it. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and you should. Yep. And the special purpose bank, special purpose broker dealers make sense. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, Caitlin Long, the CEO and founder of Custodia, um, a Wyoming based special purpose depository institution. Thank you so much for joining us on Galaxy Brains, Caitlin. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Okay. That's all we've got for Galaxy Brains today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our guests, Bimnet Abibi, Christine Kim, and Caitlin Long, founder and CEO of Custodia Bank. As always, check us out online, galaxy.com slash research for all of our content. Lots of written reports and stuff there. Hit us up on Twitter at GLXY Research. Um, and, uh, you know, let us know what you want us to work on. And, and, you know, if someone else wants to rap against me or battle, battle rap with a crypto rap, you know, hit me up. I'm, I'm interested. All right. And I think I could take you. So that's all we've got for Galaxy Brains. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.
Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.